0: Good afternoon. It's Wednesday the 14th of July 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson. Apologies there. Myself, Brian Gerrish.
1: Uh, Okay, we'll we'll get straight on with with mandatory vaccination because of course there was a vote held in Parliament uh, yesterday evening on this. Um, Mandatory vaccination with respect to care home staff in England. Uh, So let's have a look at the statutory instrument which was laid. Uh, This is it, the Uh, Health and Social Care Act 2008 Regulated Activities Amendment Coronavirus Regulations 2021. It just trips off the tongue. Yes, Uh, and uh, well, you can see that it says the Secretary of State makes the following regulations in exercise of the powers conferred by Sections 20 brackets 1 to 3 and 5 and 161 brackets 3 and 4 of the Health and Social Care Act 2008. A draft of these regulations was laid before Parliament in accordance with Section 162, brackets three of the Health and Social Care Act 2008, and approved by resolution of each House of Parliament, so they were holding uh, a discussion about it uh, last night. Um, and uh, uh, and
2: well, well we <laughs> just had a slight technical
1: problem there, but, <laughs> but anyway, uh, we'll solve that just as we show this little bit of video. Because on Monday afternoon, Christopher Chope MP stood up in the uh, House of Commons and made a point of order. With respect to the vote uh, which has taken place last night. So let's just have a listen uh, to what he had to say.
2: Okay, this point of order arises directly out of the response that the Secretary of State uh, gave uh, to me because tomorrow this House is being asked to approve the Health and Social Care Act 2008 regulated activities amendment coronavirus regulations 2021. When the, that instrument was laid on the 22nd of June, the explanatory memorandum said, and I quote, a full impact assessment of the costs and benefits of this instrument is, I put the emphasis on, is available from the Department of Health and Social Care and is published alongside this instrument. As at uh, 12 o'clock today, I've been trying through the good offices of our excellent uh, colleagues in the library to get an answer from the department as to when this uh, we were going to get this impact assessment and uh, the officials at the DHSC are quoted by the library as having said the impact assessment has not been laid yet, we knew that Uh, we will be laying it at the earliest opportunity. Madam Deputy Speaker, this is very serious because the Secondary Legislation Scrutiny uh, Committee on the 6th of July referred to the impossibility of being able to scrutinise this legislation Properly, without the impact assessment, despite uh, that secondary legislation scrutiny committee recommending that uh, the debate be deferred, nothing has happened. And all that the secretary of state has said in response to me was, "Well, it, we don't know where it is, but uh, don't worry about it. We'll we'll carry on tomorrow anyway." That is just not good enough. And I'd be grateful for your guidance as to what we can do to ensure that we have an informed debate with the impact assessment before us
1: um so the speaker or the deputy speaker as it was uh, really didn't have uh, much to, uh, to say about that other than it's not a matter for the chair there were then a couple of further interventions uh, from another tory mp but also from uh, the shadow health secretary um who made the point that uh, this you know mandatory vaccination is a very significant step to take Uh, It's one that hasn't been taken in the UK since the middle of the 19th century and then it was decided that it wasn't a very good idea after all and they reversed that decision very, very quickly Um, and really the point here is that that, uh, this impact assessment, um, one of the things it was looking at was the possibility of course what happens in the event that you uh, require mandatory vaccination and an individual or individuals don't want to accept that and then lose their jobs as a result, this all needed to be taken into consideration but the document wasn't published ahead of the vote last night um so uh, here is the uh, the lovely helen watley who's uh, the health minister uh, and she said the impact assessment is being worked on so in other words it's not complete or but as christopher chope made the point uh it was claimed that it was complete and it was available but it's not complete and it's not available so uh here is uh a tweet being pushed out by Mark Harper, who was one of who was the uh, one of the other uh, people that intervened on this uh, on Monday, uh, a thread on tonight's uh, COVID regulations. He said on Twitter, "It's important to say that those with concerns about these regs absolutely want to protect those that live in a care home setting. However, where vaccine take up is lower, persuasion must, compulsion uh, not compulsion must be the answer." Uh, he uh, went on to say, "It isn't good enough to expect us to vote on something." Is difficult and controversial and complicated and not share the information with the House that the minister has at her disposal. It's an abuse, it's not good enough. William Ragg said he was in despair. The government is treating the House in utter contempt. Uh, 90 minutes on a statutory instrument to fundamentally change the balance of human rights in this country is nothing short of a disgrace. Uh, is this what we're prepared to do uh, to our fellow citizens as a conservative government? Uh, and so on, so there was quite a bit of pushback. Uh, but Helen Whatley, Um, Then, uh, sorry, I should just mention that Desmond Swain during the debate last night, uh, asked Helen Whatley, uh, he said, uh, the minister will appreciate that the provisions before us extend well beyond the care homes, well beyond care home staff. And we're gonna come on to that in a second with respect to the 1% of those staff of whom she spoke in the absence of an impact assessment, uh, if their failure to be vaccinated results in dismissal, who will be responsible for the compensation? And uh, this was her response. Helen Watley said, I expect to see care homes being able to follow a process and so long as they follow a fair process there should be no need for compensation. For instance a care home can discuss vaccination with its staff member and indeed look at whether there might be an alternative role for an individual if they really don't want to be vaccinated. Uh, Although uh, I'm realistic and there are not that many roles for staff in care homes that don't involve being in the care home. Um, After that, if the situation is still that the staff member does not wish to be vaccinated, the care home must follow a notice period and make sure it follows a fair process. So in the end, uh, there were 319 votes for this uh, statutory instrument and 246 votes against. Um, Now, the legislation doesn't come into effect for another three or four months. Uh, but that's, uh, and of course, that was part of the argument, uh, that there was plenty of time, in fact, for for Parliament to wait for this uh, impact assessment to be published, but the government wasn't prepared to allow that to happen. I wonder why. Well, let's just have a look at the legislation and see what the implications are here. Um, so this is what it says. Uh, in Regulation 12, after... On oh, sorry, I do apologize, it's not on screen. Yep. Okay. In uh, In Regulation 12, after paragraph 2, insert... For the purposes of paragraph two, a registered person A, in respect of a regulated activity specified in paragraph two of Schedule One, blah blah blah. blah in other words, somebody who runs a care home uh, must secure that a person B does not enter the premises used by A unless B is a service user residing in the premises used by A. So, in other words, a care home resident uh, and B has provided A with evidence that satisfies A that either B has been vaccinated with the complete course of doses of an authorized vaccine or that for clinical reasons B should not be vaccinated with any authorized vaccine. So this this is the part which has got all the headlines because uh, this is the part that requires somebody to have the vaccinations or to have a clinical reason for not having the vaccinations. But what that implies is that you have to provide evidence. And so that implies some kind of vaccine passport. Okay, so keep that in mind. We'll be talking about vaccine passports again a little bit more, but there's more. Um, because it also goes on to say, uh, unless it's reasonably necessary for, to, for B to provide emergency assistance to the premises used by A, but, it, but we've already said that B isn't allowed to be on the premises unless they're vaccinated. So if there's emergency assistance, If I'm reading this properly, it seems to imply that this goes beyond care home staff, anybody providing emergency assistance, uh, unless it's reasonably necessary for B to provide urgent maintenance assistance. So maintenance, uh, people will require to be vaccinated as well. Uh, Unless B is attending the premises used by A in the execution of B's duties as a member of the emergency services, well, they might be vaccinated anyway, but that still applies to them as well. Uh, If, uh, unless B is a friend or relative of a service user, and that service user is or has been residing in the premises used by A. So if you're going to visit uh, somebody who's a a resident of care home, this seems to apply to to you as well. So you'll have to be vaccinated and improve your vaccination status. Uh, Unless B is visiting a service user who is dying, but again, you won't be able to go and visit that service user who is dying unless you're vaccinated, seems to be what this is saying. And unless it is reasonably necessary for B to provide comfort or support to to a service user in relation to service users bereavement following the death of a friend or relative. So that may be some counsellor, some kind of counselling, or unless B is under the age of 18 where the vaccination uh, isn't available for them. So it's it's pretty clear that this goes well beyond just care home staff, but uh, to what degree, I'm not entirely sure. I would like to hear, some more expert opinion I haven't seen very much uh, expert opinion in the press about the scope of this beyond uh, care home staff themselves
0: yeah I, I think it's also worthwhile asking why they're going for care home staff why aren't they going straight for the NHS so is this a thin end of the wedge to get it in if you can if you can go for those care homes and make it mandatory there, then you can move on to the NHS. That's one thing. But of course, the care home staff, I would say, are generally a, uh, a weak, they're a vulnerable target, because a lot of the people providing very difficult um, work inside a care home are paid um, a pittance, some of them, for the, for the hours that they do. They haven't got strong unions. So I think the government is deliberately targeting uh, these people because they basically haven't got the means to group up in a group action or come back through the unions.
1: I think I think you're right in what you say there. But I think that uh, on top of that, uh, of course, there's the, all the criticism about the number of deaths in care homes at the beginning of this. Uh, and so that is also part of this, um, you know, because well, that's but- that's an easy sell. We've got to protect the people in the care homes
0: until we ask the question, what did the people in the care homes die of? Because of course, although it's been admitted publicly that thousands of elderly people died as a result of the government's policy to move um, COVID infected people out of the NHS, there's never been any proper investigation into what took place. So now we're putting in another layer of government uh, policy, um, We haven't we haven't done the basic safety checks in the first place. So this is just compounding the problem. What's going to happen? Um, Good staff are going to leave. You're going to bring in others to replace those care assistants or nurses and the elderly people are gonna be even more vulnerable to somebody sticking a needle in their arm, I think.
1: Well, I think that's right. But of course, there are already concerns about that there are no others to bring in. So you're even gonna put more pressure on people that are already under massive pressure.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, if we're talking vaccines, we need to think about the so-called mix and match. Uh, This is going back to the 6th of June, but we thought we'd just bring it on screen to get a bit of a flavor for what's going on. So here's the Guardian headline, mix and match COVID booster jabs may be offered. Researchers are testing whether a second dose of a different vaccine could generate stronger immune response. Notice the way that's phrased. So it's all utterly positive. We're going to mix the vaccines and we're hoping we're going to get a better, stronger immune response. We're not going to say we're going to mix the vaccines and then we're going to look at the uh, adverse reaction data Mm. in order to see how safe it is. So following through in that article, here's comments from Professor uh, Lawrence Young. Nevertheless, mix and match vaccination bodes well for the future efficacy of booster shots to soup up protective immunity against virus variants. These booster jabs may be even more effective if tweaked to include the variant spike protein, something currently being trialed by Moderna and very soon by other vaccine manufacturers. Now, his comments are based on the fact that the Guardian article is talking about some very, very simplistic trials which appeared to show some beneficial results from mixing vaccines. Um, but no peer review. So these, these were not substantiated trials. They were very low-key, very weak trials. But nevertheless, the professor is happy to say, well, this bodes good news. Well, another professor is in the article, Professor Dean Pillay. He says we await the results of more pilots. And he's talking about uh, mixed vaccination trials. But overall, this is good news since it means that booster doses of vaccine are not limited by supply of one particular vaccine. It also will allow flexibility when considering third booster uh, doses in the future. So you can see where these people are going. We haven't even sorted out whether one vaccination dose is safe. The MHRA has not published any investigation into their own yellow card adverse effects, but we're already talking about the second, third And some people are talking about an ongoing vaccination regime. But a little bit more from uh, uh, Professor Pillay. He said the only caveat is potential side effects. Remembering that the adenovirus and mRNA vaccines are both new vaccine platforms. So a little bit of uh, concern there. Uh, Then he goes on to say that one study has shown a slight increase in side effects following mixed-dose administration, whereas this was not observed in the German study. Now, I'm going to reinforce this and say, where is the precautionary principle to protect the public? If you've got any side effects, where is the full-blown investigation into what is taking place? Well, that hasn't happened, so there's been no substantial investigation. We're just talking on a little bit of uh, scientific hearsay that somebody's done a bit of a trial and it seems to have produced a good result although there were some side effects but we're not going to worry about those because we think that mix and match is going to produce good results so let's bring in the bbc um and uh here's the bbc commenting back in may covid19 covid's lasting impact on nhs and mix and match vaccine effects now the bbc did it usually um I've got to say good job, but that's sarcasm. So the mix and match was a tiny proportion of a bigger article. Mixing vaccine increases reports of mild side effects. Adults are more likely to report mild and moderate side effects after mixing doses of the AstraZeneca and Pfizer COVID vaccines. A study indicates chills, headaches, muscle pain were reported more frequently. Uh, when different vaccine doses was combined. So this is pushing all the usual line, Mike. Any adverse reactions were short-lived with no other safety concerns. It's really intriguing finding um, finding and not something we were necessarily expecting, said Professor Snape from Oxford Vaccine Group. So um, BBC says, well, yeah, we got some side effects, but no, not to worry because these are all minor So have a look at this, which is uh, bringing us totally up to date, 14th of July. Who warns of chaos if individuals mix COVID vaccines? The chief scientist says organization is awaiting data on studies combining vaccines, but that health agencies can make decisions to mix shots. So the World Health Organization, which supposedly is the overall safety organization for what's happening is casually admitting there's no safety data on combined shots, but not to worry, the health agencies can make decisions anyway. So this is the lady, um, Sumya Swaminathan, if I pronounce that correctly, the chief scientist. And she said this publicly, it's a little bit of a dangerous trend here. It will be a chaotic situation in countries if citizens start deciding when and who will be taking by that she's talking about mixing a second, a third and a fourth dose. So now it's it's the fault of the citizens, really, that they're the ones who are going to be silly enough to be mixing doses. And yet we know from within the system in UK, that many people have found that they've been given a mixed dose when they've gone for their NHS vaccination. So what happened after this lady made this statement? Um, Well, she said this, mixing vaccines is, quote, a data-free zone. There is no data on the safety aspects or benefits of mixing vaccines. But very quickly, she realized she shouldn't have said that. So we've put some words. I shouldn't really have let that slip out. So what did she do? Well, she went to Twitter in order to correct her statement. And this is the amazing tweet that she put out: "Individuals should not decide for themselves. Public health agencies can, based on available data. Data from mix and match studies of different vaccines are, quote, "awaited." Immunogenicity and safety both need to be evaluated." So she states that the data isn't there. Um, But essentially, she's already said that the public health agencies can go ahead based on data they don't have. Now, what was interesting was the responses. And this is a, a straw poll, I admit, but let's look at how people replied to what she said. So the first one is you need to retract these statements. You're actively undermining vaccination programs in Canada and Europe where mix and matching second doses is permitted and quote, deemed safe. But how can that individual say when we know that there is no safety data, even in UK?
1: Yeah, but it's deemed safe nonetheless, somebody has decided.
0: Yeah, so you've been told they're safe, don't ask any questions, don't rock the boat. But then we've got these sorts of quotes, but I got AstraZeneca and Pfizer. Why was this not told to countries before? Canada officials told us it was good. Should we now be worried? Well, unfortunately, the answer to that lady is, yes, you should be worried because A, you weren't told the truth, and B, you weren't told the truth about something which affects your health. And second one we'll bring in here from uh, uh, Rosalie Burgess. Just so you're aware, I was not given any option of choosing to mix or having the same vaccine that I had for my first dose. I was forced to uh, to either receive a different vaccine as my second dose or leave without my vaccination dose. It's demoralizing. So what we're starting to see in these comments, of course, is that the public have been lied to and deceived Mm. uh, over the subject of mix and match. But not to worry, because the NHS is uh, pressing ahead with its immunization management service, Um, This document was sent in to us and here they are pressing very hard that the NHS is going to be out convincing people to take up their vaccines, especially elderly and vulnerable people, knowing full well that the safety investigation hasn't been done. Mike, some of this stuff is, is very difficult to report now because the evidence that we're being lied to and deceived by the government and the NHS and Public Health England and the MHRA is just in our faces. Uh, indeed, Yeah.
1: indeed. Now, the question then is, uh, are we being lied to about uh, lockdown? And we're starting to get clues from the mainstream press. Lockdown may need to return in autumn and winter, warns sage scientists. So, uh, are we? <laughs> is there gonna be a Freedom Day on the 19th of July? Well, I think uh, most of us uh, are highly skeptical of that. Uh, here is another one. If you want to have a look at this spiked uh, report, are we heading for winter lockdown? The state of emergency risks becoming the norm. Well, I think it goes beyond risking. So let's just uh, remind ourselves uh, what, uh, what this uh, document, this is moving to step four of the roadmap from the government, what this says. Uh, it says this, um, in September, the government will undertake a review to assess the country's preparedness for autumn and winter, which will consider whether to continue or strengthen public, and business guidance as we approach the winter, including on face coverings uh, and test and trace and isolate. And we will review uh, the remaining regulations. So it's pretty clear that they intend to review the situation come September. Uh, It's highly likely therefore we will be heading back into lockdown in the winter as cases ramp up and pressure starts to build on the NHS Uh, once again. And we should remind ourselves, of course, that pressure has never Uh, disappeared from the NHS. Uh, And in fact, uh, um, I believe uh, Sajid Javid said a couple of days ago that uh, he was shocked to discover that the expected uh, waiting list for the NHS is likely to rise from its current just under 5 million people to something in the region of 13 million people uh, in the not too distant future. Uh, That's quite staggering. But uh, in the care with respect to the opening Uh, segment on the programme where we were talking about the uh, the statutory instrument with with mandatory vaccination and the likelihood that that's going to require uh, vaccine passports uh, for care home workers and people going into care homes. Uh, Just remind ourselves from this document as well of this quote, the government will work with organisations that operate large crowded settings where people are likely to be in close proximity to others outside their household to encourage the use of the COVID-19 pass if sufficient measures are not taken to limit infection, the government will consider mandating the NHS COVID pass in certain venues at a later date. So I think uh, lockdown is very likely once again, uh, in the autumn and winter, but uh, COVID passports are not going away anytime soon.
0: No, and the situation also bad in France, where you know, chosen a Guardian article again to run through this report. Um, So here we are, France reports rush for vaccines after Macron tightens the COVID rules. And uh, here's the journalist, John Henley. More than 20,000 French people a minute booked vaccine appointments in the hours after Emmanuel Macron announced that cafes, restaurants, shopping malls and trains would be, quote, out of bounds for unvaccinated customers from next month Um, so guardian was obviously greatly enthusiastic about what's happening in uh, france so this was all reported in gushing terms Um, quotes from emmanuel macron Uh, he said from the 21st of july anyone wanting to visit a theater cinema sports venue or festival that had an audience of more than 50 people would need to show a health pass proving they were either fully vaccinated or tested negative. Um, Very different view from the uh, English Italy game there with a packed stadium, but uh, on we go. What else did he say? He said this, the same requirement will be extended to bars, cafes, restaurants, shopping centers, hospitals, long distance trains, that's because the virus doesn't like going on short distance uh, travel, and planes from the 1st of August. Free COVID tests, meanwhile, will end in September to encourage vaccination. So that puts the screw on people because if they want to prove that they haven't got anything significant, they are going to have to pay for it. So this is putting the screws on people in France. Um, He goes on, vaccinations will be mandatory for health workers, retirement home staff and all others working with vulnerable people. So amazing similarity in the policy here, Mike with sanctions for those not fully vaccinated by September. And uh, what's this last one here? Uh, You've understood, he's talking to his audience, you've understood vaccine, vaccination is not immediately obligatory for everyone, but we're going to extend the health pass to the maximum in order to push a maximum of you to go and get vaccinated. So it's threats, bullying and intimidation, pressure, stress, anxiety, to make sure people in France don't think for themselves that they go and get vaccinated. Now, there was more comment from uh, the French government spokesman, this uh, gentleman, Gabriel Atoll. So he said the measures are not an obligation to get vaccinated, but a maximum inducement. So we can allow for some possibly some difference in meaning due to the translation. But I just love that sentence. This is not an obligation to get vaccinated, but a maximum inducement. Mm. Uh, We're gonna put maximum pressure on you. We simply can't afford to wait. We have to move as fast as we can. Cafe and restaurants, terraces would also be covered, by the new rules. Now, the panicking here is because the take up of the vaccine in France has been very low, uh, down around 40% for the first vaccine. And uh, so it appears that the government is doing everything they can to get that percentage raised and get the French people into the second vaccination. Now, this gentleman is very happy with the whole procedure. Uh, Stanislav no chateau uh, because he's uh, produced the automated AI system that uh, connects with uh, doctors' bookings. And he said, we've broken all records since the start of the vaccination campaign. And it's continued during the night and into this morning. So that uh, French government announcement is pushed out and suddenly this man's business is rocketing uh, because people are apparently flooding to uh, have vaccines. Um, Quite an interesting guy, he's into into capital, uh, the capital fund Optium, uh, as well as this one, but previously he was a tennis star. So I just thought he was an interesting player in the mix. Uh, But let's come back to our journalist because he wanted to get stuck in to the fact that if you dare challenge vaccines, you're far right. France's far right and anti-vax campaigners responded furiously to the president's announcement. Florian uh, uh, Philippot of Les Patrots, a breakaway party from Le Pen's Rassemblement National, said that while the UK was heading to total freedom on the 19th of July, France was sliding into a dictatorship, but uh, Guardian wasn't going to mess around there. If you challenge vaccine safety, you're going to get the label that you're effectively a far-right extremist. Now, there was some comment from, I'm going to say, ordinary people. Uh, That was just put in to make the article work, but actually the comment from these people was particularly good, or I think so. So this gentleman, Mr. Sabag, said, my members... Back to the general idea, but we're unclear how it would be organized. Are we supposed to check that passes are authentic? Now, this man's part of the, the uh, French Cinema Owners Association. And what he says is spot on because he's realized that the French government is pushing the duty, uh, the so-called duty of policing to him and his colleagues in the cinematic organization And they've got no remit to do this.
1: Well, not only that, if they do it wrong, they're likely to be open to to some kind of legal action.
0: Some form of legal action. So we've got stress, anxiety, confusion, and I'm going to label this deliberate mind control with the French government. Have a look at this uh, gentleman here. He's from the Hotel and Catering Association, Mr. Hubert. He says, I'm afraid it's going to be complicated. Our role is to welcome people to give pleasure. This will turn us into gendarmes. There are going to be rows for sure. What do we do if six people book a table and only three have passes? Ask everyone to leave. So again, we can see that the French government is putting the stress back on ordinary people in business. It's creating confusion. uh, Sorry, that should say confusion, chaos, madness and mind control. And I want to remind people that the UK column was warning that uh, back in 2011, we had secretive meetings going on with uh, French brainwashing experts. This is a gentleman called Olivier Ollier, and he was uh, working with the cabinet office to discuss ways of using applied psychology to get people to follow government policy. So we know through the SAGE um, document, Mike, that uh, the Behavioural Insights team, who was part of these secret talks with the Frenchman, said we need to use applied psychology to make people fearful, to put pressure on them. And now we're seeing more of the same as we head down to, what, a restyled lockdown, effectively.
1: Um, Well, um, the advice, the latest advice we have is that uh um, governments around the world are going to aim for full full licensing of of the COVID nineteen vaccines within the next three to six months. Uh, there isn't likely to be um, any attempt to vaccinate children until that full licensing is done. Is the what is the suggestion that, that we are uh, given? Uh, but of course, um, once that full licensing is done, uh, the pressure for mandatory vaccination is going to be even stronger because you know they, they will have. Won the argument is that going to be the position of government. So, uh, so we we watch this space
0: and we say to people challenge them wherever you can. And I think we should um, give Christopher uh, Chope a mention, Mike, because he took the trouble to stand up in Westminster and ask the question about what was going wrong. That man should receive support. He should receive positive comments from the public in order to show that he's on target and he's got members of the public behind him. Um, okay, if you
1: like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. Um, your support is much needed and would be very much appreciated, uh, but also do share our material on the various platforms. So Twitter, uh, Facebook, and so on. We are on brand new now as well. So thanks very much to them. Uh, we've got a channel on brand new and we're live streaming on that channel as well as on Rumble um, and uh, Uh, we're also on budget and Odyssey.
0: Yeah okay well a little while ago I asked uh, people if they were overseas if they could send me some material and I'm pleased to say that quite a few people did I'm just going to apologize that we weren't able to get that up immediately but today I'd like to bring on screen some of the comments that we've had and the uh, first email here which uh, I'd like to cover is from Australia said, hello, Brian, just sending a link to an update on the situation in Australia. Even though South Australia is free of local transmission, now this is from a few days ago, so there may be some change, but this was as sent at the time. Even though South Australia is free of local transmission, the government has decided to reintroduce restrictions because of, quote, cases interstate And uh, this article was sent through lockdowns, mask mandates and new vaccine rules Here's the latest COVID-19 news across Australia. And then I thought this is uh, very interesting because the text said it's been another huge day of coronavirus news in Australia. We won't blame you if you weren't able to keep up with it all. So here's your quick guide to what has happened so far to get you up to speed. I saw that, Mike, and it's the language of the BBC, isn't it? This stuff is piling in. You can't possibly understand it all. But don't worry, we, the media outlet, are gonna keep you up to speed. We're gonna give you those little bites so that you can understand just what you need to know and allow us to do the worrying about whether this is good for you. So thanks very much for that from Australia. And we also had um, an email in from Japan. The country and culture is so complex, and I'm no way an expert and can only try and scratch the surface and share some observations. I have a feeling that Japan probably doesn't want to play too much of a role in this whole agenda, but due to its dependency on the rest of the world, as well as being a G7 country, has to just go and play along with it. All the restrictions and state of emergencies are to be followed, but they are not enforced. They're also all over the place with prefectures, shops, establishments, um, enforcing them like here in Osaka, as well as quite a few other prefectures. We've just come out of a state of emergency on Monday. So I think that's saying in Osaka, we've just come out of a state of emergency. Um, shops, restaurants, etc., cetera, were required to close at 8 p.m. and some shopping malls have been closed completely. Now we're in a, quote, quasi state of emergency. The malls have opened, but restaurants still close at 8 p.m. It's a joke, really. And of course, nothing makes sense. Now, isn't it interesting that even in Japan, the confusion is causing somebody to say, I can't make sense of what's going on. Um, But this uh, particular individual said they took some pictures and videos in their local park, which is always filled with groups of people who are drinking and eating merrily, Every night of the week. While the Japanese are rule abiding, passive citizens during the day, and especially during their morning commute, they somehow loosen up in the night, take off their masks, and don't social distance. So while Corona moves into the closed bars and restaurant, it disappears for the people drinking in the parks. And we've got two tiny little video clips, but they're worth playing. So this one is just showing us what life is like on a train. I don't know whether this is an overground or an underground type train immaculately clean but as the individual said to us when people travel in uh, japan they usually wear a mask anyway so uh, no change on the trains but if we get into the parks although we can see a couple of people with masks on here in general most of the predominantly young people we're seeing here amongst the trees are sat very close to each other chatting uh, laughing and drinking without masks and i'm going to highlight that apparently there is protest or local protest in japan Um, so we were sent this image of a community notice board Uh, this was the before this is the after and what's missing is the formal notices all about lockdown covid and uh, staying apart and uh, we've also got an update from new zealand um whoever's watching the UK column said that 100 students or young people in New Zealand have been given about 1500 pounds for a Chinese developed vaccine trial. Apparently, um, New Zealand has compliant people. And this is the comment from the New Zealand Herald. So this is their big article about this trial. Um, so it says about 25 young people have been jabbed as part of sorry, with the ReCoV vaccine as part of a clinical study. It's being run in partnership with vaccine developer Ying Su uh, Rec Rec Biotechnology in China and New Zealand Clinical Research, which has centers in Auckland and Christchurch. And the article went on to say that New Zealand was seen as a good place to run the clinical trial because it had a good health system, had a quote, compliant population, and could produce high quality research data for the pharmaceutical industry. But it was this last sentence that caught my eye. It was also considered low risk as there was no COVID in the community and there was still a large population who had not been immunized. So there we are, New Zealand. If you're living in New Zealand, you are the lab rats and uh, they've now got the trials in, although there's not a lot of COVID. And uh, we will just bring in this one because we've also had a comment about LBC. So somebody said, I believe this is yesterday from today. So yesterday at about 9.30, a caller pointed out to Nick Ferrari, the number of suspected deaths after vaccination. They pointed out this information is published on the government MHRA database. Uh, but Nick said there'd been no deaths and he then shut the conversation down saying he'd given the caller plenty of airtime. So um, our viewer had messaged him, an LBC, but he declined to retract the fact that he'd put out an opinion or censored the call or told a porcupine. Um, They said that talk radio Ian Collins did read out the tweet referencing the deaths and adverse effects, um, while saying it was difficult to prove deaths were due to just the vaccine. But he did say, it was worth um, investigating. And this really shows us now how all of this is impacting on people because this particular lady said, to be honest, I'm at my wit's end as I feel the public are being swept along on a wave of propaganda and lies, screaming and shouting at the radio most days. So this is deliberate government policy to produce this state of affairs. And of course, it's up to the public to uh, expose it and speak out about it.
1: Uh, now over the last uh, number of weeks we've been talking about several parliamentary bills which we think are pretty important to our futures and uh, so let's just uh, have a look at, the, at a couple of them. Uh, uh, first of all the Covert Human Intelligence Criminal Conduct Bill, uh, that of course is no longer a bill it's an act, we'll come on to that in a second but I just want to remind everybody what this does. Uh, let, let's just remember what how we covered this uh, when it was going through parliament. Uh, First of all, it was a bill to make provision for and in connection with the authorization of criminal conduct in the course of or otherwise in connection with the conduct of covert human intelligence sources. This is people employed by the government as agents uh, to operate within protest groups uh, and in other similar activities um, and that they may be committing criminal acts in the process of that uh, intelligence gathering. Um, And if you remember the range of agencies that are allowed to commit criminal acts under under these circumstances is incredible. Let's just run through. Uh, So it's any police force, the National Crime Agency, the Serious Fraud Office, any of the intelligence services, any of Her Majesty's forces, armed forces that is, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, the Department of Health and Social Care, uh, the Home Office, the Ministry of Justice, the Competition and Markets Authority, uh, the Environment Agency, uh, the Financial Conduct Authority, the Food Standards Agency, and the Gambling Commission. All those organizations can employ people to operate within protest groups and other groups in order to gather I- intelligence and in the process are now already allowed to commit criminal acts uh, in the process of doing that. So let's uh, go have a look at some of the other uh, Bills, of course, we've got the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, we've been talking about that extensively over the last uh, uh, few weeks. Uh, This is really key because this will shut down people's right to gather and protest uh, or demonstrate or have any kind of uh, serious, provide any kind of serious opposition on the streets. Um, Then we've got the Online Safety Bill, which will uh, prevent any kind of serious uh, discussion on the internet but we also have the Counter State Threats Bill. Now this is being uh, presented, it hasn't been laid before parliament yet, but it's being presented as uh, countering the activity of Russia and China uh, with and, and the dangers that are perceived with respect to the UK's infrastructure, but it goes much further than that. Um, so um, here is uh, some information about it, published uh, three or four weeks ago now, I think, the legislation to counter state threats, hostile state activity, there's a government consultation Uh, and let's just briefly have a look at what it says. Uh, At their core, the legislative proposals in the consultation seek to do three things. Modernize counter, uh, existing counter espionage laws to reflect the modern threat and the modern legislative standards. Create new offenses, tools and powers to detect, deter and disrupt hostile activity in and targeted at the UK. Improve our ability to protect official data and ensure the associated offenses reflect the greater ease Uh, at which significant harm can be done. Okay, this is being, as I say, presented as uh, dealing with external threats, but actually it applies equally to what might be described as domestic threats, threats perceived by the British government. So let's look at what they're intending to do. These proposals, which are intentionally designed to be country and actor agnostic, that is key. They're intentionally designed to be country and actor agnostic, it applies to everybody. It involves reform of the Official Secrets Act 1911, 1920 and 1939, reform of the Official Secrets Act 1989, and the creation of foreign, a foreign influence registration scheme. Now, so But what is the issue here? Well, the issue is uh, that this will target, amongst other things, whistleblowers. Um, and so if you're a journalist operating in the UK, it is extremely dangerous uh, if you are trying to get information out which is perceived as being uh, a security risk to the United Kingdom government. Um, and uh, that security risk definition isn't really there as far as I can see, um, but uh, it puts not only the people that are attempting to whistleblow at risk, but as I say, anybody attempting to uh, cover that information. Uh, here's uh, pretty Patel uh, and what she had to say, that, that this is to empower the whole national security community to counter the insidious threat we face today. Which insidious threat? It's not really defined. There is a consultation, consultation going on at the moment. The uh, details, the link to that is at the bottom of the screen there. Um, uh, but do um, make your feelings known if you so wish. Uh, but just in time for uh, this consultation ending, which ends on the 24th of uh, July, um, the uh, Head, the new head of MI5 or the recent head of MI5, Ken McCallum, was speaking in the press today talking about less visible threats. They have the potential to affect us all. So they, they we're getting the propaganda into the mainstream press today in order to reinforce this bill uh, when it comes. Uh, and of course we've all got, to, all got to remember we've got the four R's. We've got to recognize, realize, report and remove Uh, whenever we see any activity which uh, could be detrimental to national security.
0: I'm just getting to grips with run, hide, tell, Mike, and now I've got to recognize, realize, report and remove.
1: Uh, Absolutely. Anyway, so let's just summarize. We've got four bills in place, four parliamentary bills. In fact, these are not parliamentary bills. These are enabling acts. The Covert Human Intelligence Criminal Conduct Act is already in place. The Police Crime sentencing a courts bill is on its way very quickly if people don't act and to deal with it. The online safety bill is about to go through parliament and we have in the next uh, period the counter state threats bill which will have a chilling effect on uh, on whistleblowing and that all of course fits in with uh, the government's censorship stroke spying network uh, which includes the intelligence services, the joint biosecurity centre, all the various rapid response units 77 Brigade, which claims to only operate abroad. But yes, anyway, uh, the Department of Culture, Media, Digital Culture, Media and Sport Fake News Unit, and of course, the Freedom of Information Clearinghouse. But it doesn't end there. Because if we're looking at dictatorship, uh, in that aspect, of course, we've got the health dictatorship coming as well. And if you remember, uh, a month or two ago, uh, we had uh, The wonderful Matt Hancock talking about uh, well, this is in April. uh, Them formally establishing the new Health Security Agency for the UK, the UK HSA. This replaces Public Health England. Public Health England is being removed, uh, and uh, it's going to be the country's uh, way to deal with all kinds of external threats to health. Uh, It's going to bring together all kinds of capabilities. It's total fusion. It's going to be headed up by. Uh, this lady, Dr. Jenny Harris, uh, and if we remember, she was uh, Deputy Chief Medical Officer for England, uh, regional prior to that, regional director for the South of England at Public Health England, uh, joint director of public health at uh, Norfolk County Council, uh, joint director of public health, England, uh, sorry, of public health at NHS Swindon and Swindon Borough Council, uh, local director of public health, Monmouthshire Local Health Board, and public health consultant lead for South East Wales Regional Commissioning unit. So she's got, oh, she was also a member of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization since 2007, and a member of the Expert Advisory Group on NHS Consultation. So perfect person for the job. Uh, why are we mentioning this? Uh, well, there's a new letter has been written by Lord Bethel to Dr. Jenny Harries, who's the chief executive of the UK HSA. Dear Jenny. Um, and uh, so this is all about the, the next steps and the n- next phases uh, and so the UK HSA is going to plan for the next phases of the pandemic, ensuring COVID-19 related activities are operating effectively to manage the transmission and impact of the virus. The agency will help support wider key lessons learned from the pandemic to keep our nation safe, safe both now and in the future. So anybody that thinks this is going away anytime soon uh, isn't quite uh, operating in reality. But look, uh, here's what she had to say. The country's new health security agency will learn the scientific insights from COVID-19 and continuously be preparing for future health threats. That should make you feel comfortable. Yes, Uh, but it doesn't end there because, of course, Public Health England is being stood down. uh, And as a result, they have also received a letter, uh, this time from Joe Churchill to Michael Brody, who's the uh, uh, chief executive of uh, Public Health England. Um, And, uh, well, they have... um, They have some key things to do. They have to reduce key uh, health inequalities. Um, So the government expects Public Health England to demonstrate how it's acting to reduce health inequalities, for example, by deprivation, ethnicity or vulnerable groups. Uh, They have to deal with mental health because having destroyed it, they have to build it back up again in a new way or something. Uh, And of course, they have to get on with the public health reforms, including standing themselves down. So they have to ensure that all activities That are required to dissolve Public Health England have been carried out to the standard required and to the agreed time frame. So that's that's good stuff. Uh, Ministers plan to uh, take more control of public health once Public Health England is disbanded. This is the key point, Brian. Once Public Health England is disbanded and this new uh, health security agency is fully operational, this is effectively bringing uh, all the key decisions for public health right into the cabinet office, um, and uh, we have even less transparency about how decisions are made in the future.
0: Yeah, I think we need a little bit of comment here, Mike, because while you were talking, there was a lot of comments coming up in our chat box and people were saying this is very depressing. This is serious. We can see this now coming. So people recognizing um, what we're talking about here is a dictatorship. And of course, it's a dictatorship that initially started to install itself by stealth, it, it's now hiding in plain sight, but it's pretty obvious. And then somebody has come up with a key question, well, what do we do about it? And at that point, I think we, we have to stick to the UK column line, which is we need everybody who now understands what they're looking at to describe it in the right words. This is not a conservative government. This is a dictatorship that's installed itself, government of occupation. It needs to be described for what it really is. And of course, it needs to be exposed with what it's doing at every opportunity. So if you understand the information that we're putting out, the evidence and the analysis, you've got to take that data and you've got to be shouting, emailing, writing letters, picking up the phone to ensure that it's driven home.
1: Uh, if I could make one suggestion, if we had, uh, if the... I'm not weak because we didn't organize it, if there were um five hundred thousand a million people at the last anti lockdown protest, uh surely one very simple thing that could be done would be that for every person that was at the last one brings three people to the next one, and the same happens the next one and the next one uh, then uh, points may start to be understood
0: yes and that, the- that's
1: a very simple thing that people could do if you want to if you want to start uh dealing with this get uh, yourself and others to London, the next time there is one of these events.
0: All right, and and I'll add to that. And of course, in putting the argument across, if it's evidence-based, and if it's factually based, and you're putting the argument across in a quiet, professional, reasonable way, um, you will win more people to the cause. It's getting into the uh, distressed and aggressive stance that plays into the hands of this organization Uh, which is producing the dictatorship. So um, yes, you can do something, but it requires a lot of people to do a little instead of a few people doing a lot. Uh, Well, masks on transport. Um, BBC thinks this is uh, coming in. Bus and train firms must decide whether to require masks. Now, the, the opening headline there is very interesting. Bus and train firms must decide so something interesting going on um the opening uh part of this article was very interesting because the government has said the bus and train companies must decide whether passengers will uh, be required to wear face coverings so the onus, much as we saw in france with the restaurants and the, um, the cinema organisations, saying the french government is trying to put this on us but we're not gendarmes uh, here we see the same sort of policy in Britain. Well, we would see it because there was that collusion uh, with the French in order to get this applied psychology working. So the government says, no, 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 it's not our responsibility. We're just throwing the rock in the pond. Uh, you, you've you got to sort it out yourself, transport firms. So if we pull some of this out in more detail, that was the opening uh, sentence. Now it's quite interesting to see how the language is manipulated because train companies must decide whether passengers will be required. Um, what does that mean? Well, we're not too sure. Now, if we look at the existing mask rules, those rules are going to be replaced with quote government guidance. So we've got musts. It, it must happen. It will be required. But then that's um, juxtaposition with. Uh, government guidance, which suggests that actually there's a bit of leeway. What does this do? This creates uh, confusion and distress in people. So what's the government's intention? Well, the corporations are being given lawmaking power. And you had a bit of comment on this earlier, Mike, in that uh, we can see that if you travel on a train, the train company will tell you that you can and can't do certain things. You can't put your feet on the seats with dirty shoes. Uh, But now this is being spread out, and I'm going to suggest that we've now got corporations being given the power to enforce medical interventions because that's essentially what a mask is. Um, But we've got planned confusion because each of the uh, travel companies is going to come up with a different view on what they should do. We're already seeing that, so those different corporate interpretations of the law are going to vary um and that is going to confuse people and stress them so planned confusion stress and anxiety uh, as they are offered the relaxing of covid rules this is what the government's been saying we're going to relax the rules the rules are going to go and then what are we doing no 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 we're going to impose rules through the travel companies and this one I think is Uh, is true, it's uh, an opinion, but I think what we're doing here is weaning the public off travel because many people are going to find sitting on a a train for a long distance trip with a mask on is not a nice experience. So they're going to say, no, I'm not going to make that trip. And maybe this is bringing us to the 20 mile rule from your house. But Sajid Javid had some comment. He said masks would still be recommended on public transport, but people without a face uh, covering would no longer be fined after restrictions are eased. So now we've got a double bind, a double, double bind coming in. He's talking recommended. He's saying if you don't wear a face mask, you're not going to be fined. But watch your back because maybe the travel firm's going to come after you. So this is deliberate mis messaging. Um, it says nevertheless, bus and train companies will still be able to turn away passengers who refuse to wear one unless they are exempt. But how do you prove you're exempt? Now, I know some people are doing this successfully with their own badges, but if we're sticking to what the government says, we've never had any proper definition or medical definition about what makes you exempt. So in the article, we had some analysis by BBC journalist Carolyn uh, Davies And she says, transport companies have been weighing up whether to mandate masks or not. If you're flying, chances are you'll still need to wear one. Many airlines have decided to keep masks, but most train, bus and coach operators in England will now decide they won't be mandatory following the lead set by rail and passenger groups.
1: Sadly, she's wrong about that because Siddiqui Khan mentioned just before we came on air. Brian, the transport for London is absolutely mandating masks on the underground.
0: Right. So, so, well, let's bring the labelling because it works. We've got the confusion, chaos and madness there. And this journalist can see it. She can report on it, but she doesn't understand it for what it is. Mm -hmm. She only understands that's the government policy. So she's got to push it out there. So this is malicious applied psychology by the Conservative government. And they know exactly what they're doing using the behavioral insights team to stress the public.
1: Um, good news, Brian, green jobs are on the way. Uh, and uh, well, many people won't have heard of the green jobs task force, but this is a, a group of uh, people from industry and MPs getting together. Um, but apparently every job, they've just published a, their report, every job in the UK has the potential to be green. Uh, and they're saying that, uh, uh, th- that, um, that more industry investment in green jobs and skills is required. Uh, as a just transition for workers in high carbon sectors like energy and construction, getting the right people and skills in place to achieve the government's ambitious climate goals is a huge challenge. This won't happen overnight, so it's vital that we move from intent to action now and that this report is acted upon with urgency. They said Uh, the government will not be endorsing the green jobs uh, task force recommendations at this stage or adopting them as official policy. Uh, said um, said the government. So it's not they're, they're making progress, but not quite fast enough uh, is their point. But something that has been announced uh, and is now a government policy, because uh, Grant Shapps announced it this morning, um, is that uh, uh, the transport decarbonisation plan uh, will mean that we'll have no uh, diesel powered HGVs being sold after twenty forty. Uh, so the transport decarbonisation plan is just the start. Grant Shapps said. Uh, we will need continued efforts and collaboration to deliver its ambitious uh, commitments. Um, so it occurred to me, you know, if we do remove H, uh, the sale of HGVs, uh, diesel HGVs after twenty forty, what are the implications for that? Um, well, of course, uh, w- people may have heard of uh, of uh, Nikola, uh, which is uh, sort of a, a skit on Tesla, because uh, and this is a company that set itself up to create uh, electric powered HGVs and uh, Top Gear. Uh, website, I think this was two years ago, uh, talking about the fully electric lorry that has 644 uh, brake horsepower and 250 mile range, Um, except it doesn't, uh, because in fact, Nicola admits that its uh, chairman had been misleading investors for forever, really, and uh, they're now in legal battles over this, Um, and uh, so it wasn't quite as good as uh, he was suggesting. So there doesn't seem to be an HGV that works but we're going to stop selling them in tw- by 2040. And my question to you was, Brian, ha- what is the average lifespan of, of, the, of an HGV tractor? And it seems to be it's about uh, seven and a half years. So um, if 2040 is when they stop selling them, then cer- certainly by 2050, there won't be any left. Where does that
0: leave us? Well, we're going to be in a, in a terrible position because clearly they can't pull the, the volume of freight needed with electric lorries is the answer. So, or, the, or, or there won't be the volume of freight. Or there won't be the vol- volume yes. of freight.
1: So we could just have to consider the implications of that. But uh, this uh, report is just out a couple of months ago in Joule, the magazine, uh, the feasibility of heavy battery electric trucks. And what they're saying is re- research on the decarbonization of transport often concludes that heavy battery electric trucks are infeasible due to the incompatibility of long driving distance with high energy use and low specific energy and high costs of batteries. However, emphasis is often placed on battery electric range matching that of diesel trucks instead of overall competitiveness. So for this report, they modeled battery electric trucks uh, that used high power fast charging, enabling smaller batteries and showing that the economics of battery trucks per ton kilometer improves with greater weight. Uh, driven by increased load capacity and so on. Um, and they're basically suggesting that uh, given the rapid development of batteries, we concluded the economic feasibility of heavy battery electric trucks might've been generally underestimated. But the point is there is no infrastructure for fast charging of cars or trucks or anything on, along our trunk roads. Uh, in order to build that infrastructure would take how many years, decades perhaps, um, but there's no sign of that work starting. So again, they're shutting down the sale of diesel cars, of diesel trucks, of uh, petrol cars and petrol trucks, but there's no uh, building of the electrical infrastructure that we would, that would be required to actually provide the electricity needed to replace the fleet. So there seems to be a policy of not replacing the fleet. Uh, if, if I'm wrong about that, then somebody from government or a, from well, the
0: transport industry
1: can get in touch and, and tell me how I'm wrong about that but but where is the electricity coming from to charge the hgvs and the cars where are the charging stations where are the cables being laid to uh, f- uh, provide the electricity for charging stations uh, there is no sign of any of that being done there are no announcements along that line so there can't be an intention to have them
0: no well let's end on uh, another email into UK column, which I thought was particularly interesting, taking it at face value. So I'm accepting this is true. If anybody knows differently, please tell us. Um, But the email said in the House of Commons, the rules after the 19th of July are that all staff must walk around the building wearing masks, but MPs do not have to. If this is how they treat their staff, then the public don't stand a chance. How are MPs different in protecting people from a virus? This is straight out of the animal farm playbook. Everyone's equal, uh, but some people are more equal than others. MPs talk about equality, but change the definition of it to suit their purposes. Well, agreed with all of that. Um, The person then went on to say, there's no doubt in my mind that our government has been taken over by domestic enemies who do not have the public's best interests at heart. They have to be held accountable for the suffering they have caused. Now, I thought this email really got to the heart of the matter because we've now, we've now got an audience that is realising that the government is not working for the good of the nation. The government is now attacking the nation. It's attacking uh, members of the public, and we are demonstrating how this is being done. But if you're going to fight back against what's largely a psychological attack, Um, you need the right words. And this was also sent to me uh, a couple of days ago. The word is democide. And the definition of that is the killing of members of a country's civilian population as a result of its government's policy, including by direct action, indifference, and uh, neglect. And we could
1: say 13 million waiting list of the NHS. It fits into that very nicely.
0: Yes. And so I'm going to encourage our viewers and listeners today to look up that word. There's a little bit of a a history. It was created effectively in 1992. And uh, this was, it was done because somebody felt that the definition of genocide did not do the job. The more you read that democide um, definition, the more I think we've got a word that we can Uh, use to label our own government and what it's actually doing at the moment. Mm. And it's so important to use the right words because of course one of the biggest weapons being used against us is to distort truth and facts and also to distort language so that people can't um, report and comment on what's happening in a satisfactory way. So use the right language and you are well on the way to getting the lid off what's happening around us and of course waking more people up so we'll end it there Mm -hmm. we're going to say very nicely well it's mainly me I have another commitment this afternoon so I'm afraid we're not able to do an extra time um, with our uh, dedicated audience Um, but we'll resume service as normal next week so apologies for that sometimes these things uh, crop up. But big thank you to everybody who's joined us. A big thank you to all our overseas viewers. And I'm going to end by saying be especially nice to people who tell you that they've had one vaccine, because many of those people are now saying they've had one vaccine, but they're not going to have another. And those people form a very powerful support base in getting the lid off what this uh, terrible government is up to. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. Bye -bye.